Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Jason Fung is a Canadian nephrologist and a world-leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, and his latest must-read is entitled The Cancer Code, a revolutionary new understanding of a medical mystery. Jason, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. So congrats on another really interesting and important book, The Cancer Code. I'll start off by talking about the book. You said that the war on cancer began in the 1970s. We're almost 50 years later, and yet we've hardly won that war. So I'll start with the big question at the highest level. Why is that? What are we yeah, getting wrong? A- that's a great question, and I think it's uh, to do with the fact that we've never really described what cancer actually is. So if you look at other diseases, and predominantly the, the comparison goes towards heart disease, because if you look at the number one and two killers of Americans, it's heart disease and cancer. They're sort of one and two, and they've been like that since the 1970s, so you're talking 50 years if you look back in the 70s, it was uh, quite a mismatch, though. So heart disease killed about twice, roughly twice as many people as cancer. And the progress we've made in heart disease has been fairly steady. Like we've gotten slowly better and better drugs, better control of blood pressure, for example, more recognition that we need to stop smoking, and also better treatments. So drugs got better, cardiac angiograms and stuff, all of those have gotten better. So if you look at the number of people dying, from heart disease, it's gotten better at a very rapid rate, and cancer has not. Unfortunately, if you have cancer, your chances of making it are about the same today as in 1970, which is a stunning sort of failure, if you will, because look at anything from the 70s, right? I mean, you look at computing power, for example. I mean, gosh, I mean, you have more computing power in your watch than probably the the most powerful supercomputer. And if you look at anything else in sort of what we've accomplished in terms of technology, we're far behind. But even in medicine, cancer is far behind. And I think it's because this lack of understanding of what cancer actually is. So if you don't know what it is, it's very hard to treat it. So if you know that heart disease, for example, is caused by a blockage in an artery, then you develop drugs, for example, that thin the blood. If you understand that smoking contributes to heart disease, you can say stop smoking and so on. But we've never really defined what is cancer. And that was sort of, that's why it's been such a mystery. And that's what I talk about in the first part of the book is sort of this evolution in our understanding of what cancer actually is, the sort of paradigm of cancer. And as we're getting closer and closer to the truth, then we develop better and better treatments for it. So what is cancer? What have we been getting wrong in terms of the def- how we define cancer? I think that we've gone through sort of three great sort of modern paradigms of thinking about cancer. So our first thought about what cancer is that it's a disease of too much cell growth. So if you take, for example, breast cancer, so breast cancer is a is a starts off as a lump and it grows and it grows and then it spreads and then that eventually kills you. And that's a really great paradigm because if you understand that this is a disease of too much growth, then you can develop treatments to kill cells. And that was sort of this huge wave in the 70s that developed 
So we developed surgeries. So that developed from the 1800s, truthfully. Then we developed radiation treatments, which developed in the early 1900s. And then finally, we developed chemotherapy, which is basically a selective toxin. So they're poisons. Chemotherapy is a type of poison that kills cells. And it kills cancer cells slightly faster than it kills normal cells. And that's why you have these sort of horrific side effects, the nausea, the vomiting, the hair falling out that we typically associate with chemotherapy. But this is the reason you have to understand what cancer is, is because if you think about it as a disease that is too much growth, then you say this answer is to kill. So you have cutting, like surgery, you have burning, you can burn it like radiation, or you can poison it with chemotherapy. And those led to major advances. Like it's not to put down this, but it sounds very primitive. But it was actually a huge advance because that allowed us to treat many cancers and actually forms the backbone of most of our cancer treatments today. But by the 1970s, 1980s, we started to into the limits of where that paradigm could take us. We couldn't invent better ways to kill, that is. So then we had to understand cancer at a deeper level. So if you go one level deeper, you understand that cancer is a disease where cells are growing, but you're not answering the question of why. That is, why are these cells growing? And that was the big second great paradigm uh, shift that took over in the 70s, which was this genetic paradigm, which most people think we're in the middle of, but we've actually passed that and we're on to the third great paradigm. But the genetic paradigm of cancer says that the reason that these cells are growing too much is because there's a mutation in these cells. So if you have something like tobacco smoke, for example, which causes lung cancer, you're damaging the cell's DNA. So they're damaging the genes. You can develop these gene mutations. And if one of them randomly happens to hit a growth-sensitive gene, then you can turn on these growth genes, which will allow the cancer to grow. And so this um, sort of developed through the 60s and 70s and 80s as we started to learn about the genome. And the first few drugs that came out of that were a sort of vindication of this paradigm because by the 2000s, we had started to develop a couple of drugs that didn't were not cellular killers. They were trying to fix the genetic problems that we saw. So two drugs, the first two drugs that came out was imatinib, which was for something called uh, CML, which is a type of leukemia, and also Herceptin, which was for breast cancer. And the drugs were simply fantastic. Like they were like so good. They weren't, they had so much less side effects because they're not intrinsically poisonous to the cell. That what they're doing instead was fixing these genes and therefore it would get better. So when I went to medical school in the 90s, there's this huge optimism that, hey, all we're going to need to do is fix, find the one or two gene mutations for each type of cancer. So breast cancer, we find a couple of gene mutations, we fix those. Hey, for colon cancer, we're going to find two or three gene mutations, we'll fix them, and that'll be the end of cancer. And that's really what we thought in the 90s. And unfortunately, it didn't quite come to pass. So as we started to look into it, we had the Human Genome Project, which if you remember, uh, finished in 2000. It was a huge project, and the goal was to sort of map all the genes of the one human, and what they found was every gene. So we thought, okay, well, this is a roadmap. We're going to find everything we need right here. But it didn't turn out that way. So then we followed up with an even more ambitious pro project called the Cancer Genome Atlas, 
which wouldn't actually uh, sequence one person's genes. It would take like 33,000 tumors and sequence them. Because by that time, of course, the technology had progressed. What would take years would take literally like 10 minutes by then. I mean, <laughs> these multi-million dollar genome project, like you could probably walk down to your lab and get your genome sequenced for like a hundred bucks sort of thing right now. <laughs> so the technology way advanced. And instead of finding two or three mutations, what we found was complete sort of bedlam. So colon cancer, for example, didn't have one or two mutations. It might have a hundred mutations. And the worst part was that if you had two patients, patient A and patient B, patient A would have a hundred mutations, which is tough, but patient B would have a hundred completely different mutations. So that was it for this sort of genetic paradigm because you couldn't develop a hundred drugs for patient A and a hundred completely different drugs for patient B. It's hard enough to develop one or two. And that was sort of the low point by 2010 or so. We figured out that, well, this was not going to get us where we needed to go. And that was really one of the big reasons why the second great paradigm sort of failed. It fizzled quite a bit. So instead of leading us to sort of cure of cancer, we were actually not much further ahead. And that's why cancer, progress in cancer had slowed to a trickle. And then, of course, out of those sort of ashes came the next sort of thickening. So again, as this paradigm failed, and it's not for lack of trying, people are doing their best, but as this failed, then we started to develop the sort of third great paradigm, which again answers the question of why. That is, we knew there were genes that were mutated that were causing too much growth, but why? Why were these genes mutating? And that was the question that we needed to answer. And that is where things get very interesting. And this is where we are today, sort of in the beginnings of this third great paradigm shift. And what we started to realize was that cancer, in fact, is an evolutionary disease. That is, if you take a breast cancer, a breast cell, it is derived from a normal breast cell. So why is this breast cell suddenly turning into a breast cancer cell? And it turns out that the answer to that very likely is that it's a type of response to some kind of chronic injury, but that the seed of cancer is probably in every single one of our cells. So that a breast cell, in fact, all the cells of our body have the potential to become cancerous. And that was one of the things that some of the researchers in the 2010s started to look at. They said, hey, cancer is not just a human disease. It's actually not just human cells that get cancer. Everything gets cancer. Dogs get cancer. Cats get cancer. Rats get cancer. Even these sort of microscopic animals called hydra, which is one of the most primitive forms of life, they get cancer. So cancer is not something that is sort of new. It's very old from an evolutionary standpoint. And in fact, it's probably a, what the cells uh, is sort of running this sort of cancer subroutine, which is sort of a uh, survival program. So when cells are under a lot of stress, what they'll do is revert to this sort of original programming that they had, in which case it's trying to survive. And then it becomes out for itself. So that breast cell, instead of working as part of a team, that is normally our, the cells in our body act as a full team, like a, like a soccer team, for example, so, or, or a baseball team. You, you each have a role to play, you're specialized, and you help each other for the good of the team. Well, a, a, um, a, a cancer cell is more like a 
an individual player who now is all of a sudden just out for himself, right? He doesn't care about his teammates. He does, just does whatever he wants for his own good. And that's why it has, it has done that as, as sort of as a response to a chronic injury. It's sort of evolved that way. So the interesting part is that it's not the sort of forward evolution. It's a sort of a backwards evolution. So instead of becoming more advanced, it becomes more primitive. So that's the way when you look at a cancer from a pathological standpoint, microscopically, the, the cells look very primitive. They look very de-differentiated, and that's the way they are. So they're actually going back in time almost to a more evolutionary, primitive sort of state. And this is very interesting because now, of course, then you can say, well, if this is almost like a foreign invading organism. It's the, the cell, which was normally part of the team, has become sort of rogue, has gone rogue, has become sort of this anarchist. And now you need to get rid of it because now it's no longer part of the team. And in fact, that's what the human body actually does. So we have an immune system that actually continuously patrols the body trying to get rid of these cancer cells. And when that breaks down, then these cancers can get out of control. So therefore, this is the new thing, is that if that is what's happening, then the third great paradigm leads to the next sort of big wave in cancer therapeutics, which is immunotherapy. That is, we're not trying to kill cells. We're not trying to correct genetic defects. We're trying to boost our immune system to try and keep up with these sort of foreign invaders. And that's sort of why uh, immune therapy in the last sort of 10 years has really taken off. We have things like CAR-T therapy and other treatments that are now based more upon looking at cancer as an evolutionary disease because it's, that's why these genes are mutating. It wasn't just random. So it's just a very interesting story about how our paradigms have changed, which has led to new treatments, which really gives me hope that we'll make more progress in the future. It, it, it's fascinating. I, I'm, I'm a hope guy. I'm an optimist. So I hope that this third paradigm, this last paradigm is the last paradigm. And, and now we, we have something here. And I'm curious, something you said in the book, for cancer to grow, quote, you need the right seed, the right soil, and the right conditions. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. And, and this is the thing. So this is what I was describing, this sort of what is cancer, really describes the seed. And that's where the genetic paradigm really focused exclusively on is this kind of seed. But if you think about a seed like whatever, like if you buy a package of corn seeds or whatever, it won't grow in this little paper packet. But as soon as you grow, drop it in the right soil, it will grow. So not only do you require the right seed, you require the right soil. You put it in the desert, it's not going to grow. And it requires the right conditions. So even if you have the genetic seed of cancer, which actually lies in all of us, it actually requires that sort of um, soil, which is provided by our body and the environment that we're in. So we always think of with this genetic paradigm, we think, oh, it's a predetermined sort of uh, destiny sort of thing, right? If you're going to get cancer, you're going to get cancer kind of thing. It's in your genes. But it's not because there's so much data that suggests that it's actually the environment we're in. So if you look at traditional societies, for example, so the Inui in the far north or the, the Kalahari bush people or native Africans living a traditional sort of lifestyle, 
they actually almost never got cancer, which is fascinating. So in fact, one of the universities on, in Ontario, Canada, they would actually send yearly expeditions to the Arctic Circle to see why these Inui, they called them Eskimos at the time, didn't get cancer. They said they're immune to cancer. They actually don't get cancer. Because even though every human has that seed of cancer, the soil was so inhospitable to cancer that it didn't grow. Then, of course, as those Inui became westernized, and you saw the same thing in the, the bush people of, you know, in Australia saw the people, same thing in, the, in Africa where these people eating and following a traditional lifestyle, they never got cancer. And you see it, for example, if you take a Japanese woman or a Chinese woman in Shanghai or Japan, and when they moved to San Francisco, for example, within a couple of generations, her risk of breast cancer has tripled. So it's not the genetics that was important. I mean, yes, it is important, but it's not the only thing that's important. It's also that sort of soil, that lifestyle. So this is at once good and bad news, right? The bad news is that it's our current modern lifestyle that is providing the fertile soil for cancer. But the good news is that, hey, if that's the case, if we could understand what it is about our lifestyle that is encouraging the cancer, you could, instead of tripling the risk, you could reduce your risk by two-thirds. It's, it's, it's an incredible opportunity here um, to make a difference with the lifestyle and predominantly the diet that we're following. So you lead me to my next question. I think there's a question that everyone has who's listening right now. In terms of our lifestyle, that is the question. What should we all be doing if we want to manage our risk of developing cancer in terms of lifestyle, nutrition, you name it? What should we all be doing? I don't think anyone wants cancer. <laughs> of course not. And there's a lot of different things, and it depends upon which cancer. So, of course, if you look at the different types of cancer, you can look at how much each factor contributes to cancer. So number one, but you know, and for a long time is tobacco smoke. So tobacco smoke contributes. So you should stop smoking. That's you know sort of the number one thing you can do. But interestingly enough, the number two thing, which is very close, is the diet. So if you look at something called population attribution fraction, that is, tobacco smoke contributes about to about contributes about thirty five percent to cancer overall, and diet is about thirty percent. So that's huge. And it far outranks everything else. So if you look at things that we talk about often, like pesticides and chemicals and stress and all this thing, they're like 1% or 2%. But diet is like 30%. And for years, we didn't know what part of the diet really contributed to cancer. So we've actually spent several decades trying to figure that out. The first thought was that fiber. Maybe if you eat too little fiber, you're going to get cancer. Turns out that wasn't true. Then they thought it was dietary fat and said, now well, if you eat too much fat, you get cancer. Turns out that wasn't true either. Then they went through the vitamins. So they tested vitamin A, didn't work. Vitamin B, didn't work. Vitamin C, didn't work. Vitamin D, didn't work. Vitamin E, didn't work. So they basically went through all the vitamins. So cancer wasn't actually a vitamin deficient disease. So therefore giving vitamins didn't work. So after all this, it finally became clear in the sort of 2000s what the biggest contributor of the diet was, and that was likely obesity. So obesity actually leads you to a higher risk of many types of cancer, 
the most prominent being breast cancer and colorectal cancer. So that's the sort of number two and three cancers overall. Number one is lung cancer, which has nothing to do with obesity, has mostly to do with smoking. But those two cancers are actually now recognized as obesity-related cancers. And this is new sort of knowledge that came about really only in about 2003 when the first uh, studies came out. So therefore, if you're trying to prevent uh, cancer, the main thing you can do is avoid these diseases that are associated with obesity. You need to sort of get back to a normal weight. And a lot of that comes back to the hormones that are involved in weight gain, such as insulin and also mTOR, which we've talked about before. So in terms of diet, I want to spend a little time there. So, okay, if, if we're not obese, we're in a, in a better situation and something I've heard in terms of diet is sugar sugar feeds cancer 60 minutes did something on something 60 minutes did something on sugar years ago and the role played in cancer I'm curious what your take is on sugar and and if you were to zero in on diet what else should we be paying attention to yeah that's probably the number one thing so when you try and unpack how nutrition leads to cancer it's a very interesting sort of new understanding of how these develop. So our body actually contains certain nutrient sensors. So insulin is one of the hormones that signals that food is available. So when you eat food like carbohydrates, bread, and so on, insulin will shoot up. When you eat protein, something called mTOR, which is another hormone, will shoot up, for example. Sugar plays a sort of insidious role in that insulin doesn't go up, but it actually causes a lot of fatty liver, which causes insulin to go up. So it's not directly causes it to go up, but it's actually many times worse than glucose, which is found in like bread and rice and potatoes and that kind of thing. But the those nutrient sensors, so insulin and mTOR predominantly, they signal that food is available. So when you eat, you know, those nutrient sensors say, hey, food is available. And that's the signal to the rest of our body that the cells need to grow. Your, your body sort of only wants to grow when food is available. And this is a survival response, of course, because if you're in the middle of winter and there's no food around, you don't want to grow and grow because those are all cells that need to be fed and then you could die. So our body has actually used the exact same signaling molecules that we have for nutrient sensors of so insulin and mTOR, and they have actually used them as growth factors as well. And the thing about growth factors is that growth in general in adults is not a good thing. So everybody thinks growth is good, growth is good, but it's not. I mean, cancer is a disease of too much growth at its very heart, right? There are reasons, you know, why. But if you're going to tip the scales in favor of growth, then you're going to tip the scales in favor of cancer because cancer loves to grow. So it so both insulin and mTOR play a role in that as well as sugar. Sugar probably, you know, so diseases such as obesity and type 2 diabetes are actually diseases of too much insulin. And so not only do you get the sort of glucose metabolic derangement, but you also get this sort of excessive growth of everything. So you get too much protein, you get too much body fat, you get bigger, and that's not a good thing. So this is one of the things we realize that your body sort of and this is important for the longevity, is that your body either is in sort of either growth mode or it's in this sort of repair maintenance mode. When you eat, you shift yourself into a growth mode because all your nutrient sensors go up, 
those nutrient sensors are in fact growth factors. When they go down, when you don't eat, in fact switches over and goes into this maintenance mode, which includes things like autophagy, which I think we've just uh, described before, which is this sort of cellular recycling system. You're trying to break down old protein into a uh, apoptosis where you're trying to shed these extra cells. And that's always going to stop you from developing cancer because cancers rely on these growth signals. And that might have been one of the big reasons why these traditional societies where they didn't eat a lot of processed foods, sugar and processed foods are probably the biggest contributors to this whole thing, as well as eating sort of constantly. So if you think about it, um, people didn't eat six or seven or eight times a day the way we're told to. But every time you eat, you're telling your body, you should grow, you should grow, you should grow. And the one thing that's going to grow more than anything else is those cancer cells. So, so two things I want to touch on. So one, we've talked about, you mentioned mTOR. I'm glad you brought that up. I discussed that with our mutual friend, Dr. Frank Lipman. And, and I think it's an important distinction because you talk about there's your growth stage and then you sort of, I think you transcend to thinking about longevity. And at a certain point, as you're getting older, Frank said your mid-40s or 40s, you want to start focusing on longevity and too much protein increases mTOR good for growth when you're growing when you're an athlete when you're young you're moving but like you, you cross a threshold maybe it's in your 40s where that's not so good and you don't want that and that's where excess protein and growth not a good thing in terms of longevity maybe you look great in the mirror but not good for <laughs> longevity and in terms of so autophagy. So let's segue. When I when I hear autophagy, I love autophagy. I love the idea of cleaning up our cells. I think of intermittent fasting, which is something you're also an expert in. So can we talk about the role of intermittent fasting in all yeah. of this? Absolutely. And I think that it is sort of one of these key sort of wellness ideas that I didn't just make it up or you didn't just make it up. It's been around for forever. <laughs> People talk about cleanses and detoxes. If you look in the religious literature, of course, they talk about doing fasting for purity and spiritualism and stuff, right? So it's been around a long time. And the idea is that I agree with Dr. Lipman. There's this sort of dichotomy between growth and longevity. So it's just like if you think about a car, for example, if you have a nice fast car and you rev the engine, you're going to go really fast. But if you keep revving that engine, that thing is not going to last. That's just the way it is, right? You use it, you rev it, you rev it, you rev it, you race it around. It's going gonna, it's gonna to burn out very quickly. So you can do one or you can do the other, but you can't get both. So at some point, it becomes more important not to rev that engine, to put it into neutral, to give it a nice cleaning and all, put it in the garage, let it rest. Same with our body, right? You're either going to grow or you're going to go into this sort of maintenance, long maintenance, repair mode, cellular maintenance side sort of mode. And that's what's important for longevity. So in the first part of your life, of course, growth is probably the most important thing. And then once you sort of reach adulthood and adult size, then, you know, for longevity, you probably want to go into this sort of maintenance mode, in which case, again, it all comes down to the nutrient sensor. So mTOR is the main one. You eat protein, mTOR goes up and it turns off autophagy. And that's why intermittent fasting is such a powerful sort of uh, stimulant for autophagy. And it's one of these things where your body uh, recognizes that there are no nutrients coming in. So they need to go into this 
repair maintenance mode and that's what it does so it starts to look at it starts to break down all of your old cellular parts these organelles and basically break them all down so it sounds really bad so you're breaking down proteins and stuff but if you think about it it's actually not it's actually the first step in sort of a rejuvenation process because you got to get rid of the old stuff first before you can bring in and rebuild that new stuff because when you fast of course what happens is that you, you, you start this autophagy, you also stimulate growth hormones so that when you do uh, eat again, your body is going to rebuild. But it's not going to rebuild everything. It only rebuilds those proteins that it needs. So if you're losing, if you're doing weight loss, for example, and you may break down some of the connective tissue and the skin. That's protein that you don't need, right? That excess skin that you see sometimes on those you know, TV shows that need surgery. Well, you're going to break some of that down, but you're not going to rebuild it because the body is only going to rebuild what it needs. Just like if you exercise, you break down your muscle. You actually cause little tears in your muscle when you exercise. It's in that rebuilding process that you actually get stronger because the body actually says, well, I really need this. So I need to break it down, but then I need to rebuild it. So astronauts, where you take the stress off, they actually get very weak very fast and they lose bone, they lose muscle, so they have to exercise, they have to put stress on that muscle. So this whole idea of autophagy is very powerful in terms of a longevity, but also turns out it's very important in terms of cancer because cancer depends upon those same growth factors in order to survive. Like it cannot survive. Like if you look at breast cancer cells in the lab, it will not survive without insulin. You don't. You take away insulin, those cells just shrivel up and die because they're actually quite reliant on glucose, for example, to feed themselves. So in a lot of ways, this gets back to sort of these ancient practices. Oh, you know, you make sure you maintain a good weight is always good advice. Don't eat too much sugar is good advice. And maybe throw in a bit of intermittent fasting in there because you never know. That could really benefit you. So in terms of intermittent fasting, everyone has has an opinion on what the number is, what the magic number (laughs) is. In your opinion, is it 16 hours? Is it 18 hours? Is it the Walter Longo? Like, what's your, I know this is like a whole big discussion, but like, what's your advice to everyone in terms of they're interested in longevity, if they're interested in autophagy, if they're interested in managing cancer risk? In, In your experience, what should we do in terms of intermittent fasting and time interval? I think in order to get into sort of autophagy, you sort of have to be up into the 16 plus hour range. So keeping in mind that prior to about 1970, people fasted about 12 to 14 hours every day without thinking about it. That is, if you ate dinner at 6 p.m. and you ate breakfast at 8 a.m., that's a 14 hour fast. And people did that no problem. And they didn't even think about that. So I think that you could actually get a lot of it, but it starts to see the autophagy and some of these cleansing processes, I think, get started around 16 hours. If you're on the heavy side, that is you're overweight or you tend to eat a lot, then you may have more, you may have to go a little bit longer to get to that stage because your body can store sugar to use as a source of fuel. So you're not going to get into that sort of uh, range. So at least 16 hours is what I would think to get into that. But how often do you need to do that? And, and that's not clear. And it probably depends. 
if you are overweight, then you probably need to really push it to get yourself into sort of a normal weight status to prevent some of these problems. And then I think it's always beneficial once in a while to get into a longer state, which is sort of 24 hours plus, because then we are really going to activate it. So if you look at the way the body works, you're, you, you can store sugar in the form of glycogen in your liver, and that will last about 24 hours. By 24 hours, it's pretty much gone. And then you can start to break down some of these other proteins you don't need and so on. So you have to get up over 24 hours at least occasionally. And again, if you look at many ancient practices, like, again, religious practices, they'll do that once a year or Ramadan, they'll have that sort of a month of fasting or Yom Kippur where you're going to have a day of fasting. Catholic religion, you're going to fast around Lent. Once in a year or one, a few times a year, you're going to go into those longer fasts. So you're trying to get both the benefits of the shorter fast, sort of getting into that 16 to 24 hours, and then once a year, twice a year, three times a year, whatever, more if you need to get above 24 hours, and that way you're going to get both benefits. Um, at the same time. So for someone who's health forward and, and wants to stay ahead in terms of cancer prevention, are there any labs you'd recommend for people to talk to their doctor about or go to LabCorp request if they really want to get ahead of this and educate themselves? Yeah, in terms of that, I mean, there's a limit to the screening. So one of the things that was one of the big hopes was that you could do screening. So that's mammograms, PSA, that kind of thing, where you could find cancer early and therefore treat it. And we've had a number of successes. So cervical cancer, women do pap smears, for example, and that's very successful in terms of reducing cervical cancer and also colonoscopy, for example. That's another very good way to screen. And this involves sort of checking your bowels, usually at about age 40 to 50. They put a camera in, look for early cancers, and then you could treat it right away. Unfortunately, for, for mammograms and for prostate cancer was, is the blood test, the PSA. It wasn't as successful. And part of it is this understanding that this sort of seed of cancer lies everywhere. So finding it early doesn't necessarily mean that you can prevent its sort of development. And that's why these things have uh, recently people have started to roll back. The, the screening for mammograms. There's been a lot of controversy about this, but PSA screening, for example, has been very controversial, whereas you'd think that it was a slam dunk. The, the main thing in terms of chemo prevention, which is this term uh, to try and prevent uh, cancers from happening, comes down to sort of trying to maintain a normal weight, trying to maintain, avoid type 2 diabetes. So in terms of blood tests, the most important thing would be something called the hemoglobin A1c. We know that type 2 diabetes is a disease of too much insulin, which is going to lead you to a higher risk of breast cancer. And this uh, hemoglobin A1c, sort of an average of three months of blood sugars, and there's specific ranges. So depending on your lab here in Canada, the, the values we use is above 6% is a pre-diabetes, above 6.5% is considered diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is a, is a significant risk factor for those sort of obesity-related cancers. And then the other things that you could uh, measure, which is relatively simple, again, is the waist, waist circumference, because again, it's a much better indication of your risk than just body weight because the the weight that's carried around your midsection around the waist is much more dangerous in terms of 
that type of fat compared to the fat, for example, that you carry under the skin. So uh, what you're looking for, so you simply measure the circumference around your waist. And really all you're looking for is a waist to height ratio less than uh, 0.5. So you want your waist to be half or less of your height. And that's a simple rule of thumb that you can easily uh, measure any time. So if you're six, six feet, for example, then that's you want your waist size to be less than three feet, which is 36 inches, for example. So you mentioned chemotherapy and cancer touches so many people. I, I've lost people in my family to cancer. I'm sure many of our listeners have lost loved ones to cancer. And I'm curious, and I know it's so hard to generalize, and there are various stages of cancer, and there are various types of cancer, and all and, and different prognoses and, and success rates, but what advice, if you had to generalize for someone who's going through this process, what advice would you give to someone in terms of treatment, like where, where we are today, we'll talk about like where we are today and, and where we're going and what is the tried and true, if you will, uh, versus treatments that are a bit more progressive and perhaps promising? Yeah, so that's a tough one. So It is a tough of, one. <laughs> <laughs> see, once you get the cancer, we've spent a lot of time researching what the best treatments are. So, there's, so I, I generally recommend whatever your oncologist tells you is generally what you should probably do. Preventing cancer is really the way to go, but it's not always possible. So once you get it, they've done all kinds of treatment trials on what's the best way to combine all of these different drugs and all of these different modalities, such as surgery and radiation and so on. The only way you can really improve that is that one, you can try to uh, use diet to your favor. That is trying to eat basically unprocessed healthy foods, which is I know something that you obviously talk a lot about, but, you know, avoiding processed foods, and that includes a lot of the processed carbohydrates, but a lot of processed meats and a lot of processed oils as well. You want to eat stuff as close to natural as possible. Intermittent fasting is something that's been used also for chemotherapy, for example, um, and may make it easier on you during chemotherapy, which might be important. So there's new trials on that. And the, re the way it works is very interesting. So they had people fast sort of before and during chemotherapy. And chemotherapy uh, is a selective poison. So it basically kills cells. And it kills cells that are dividing quickly. So what you try to do when you fast is you try to get your cells to stop dividing so quickly. And one of the ways to do that is to, to fast, you reduce all your nutrient sensors, you put all your cells into this sort of a little bit slower turnover rate. Cancer cells can't do that because of course they're just growing like crazy. So they're not gonna reduce their replication rate whereas their own cells like your hair follicles, their, your, your, the lining of your gut, they will slow down and therefore you're gonna get less side effects if you do the fasting before and during chemotherapy. So there's a couple of small studies that showed that. And of course, that can make a huge difference <laughs> to people if they're going for chemotherapy and something simple like not eating sort of the 12 or 24 hours prior, that means that you don't get the nausea and your hair falling out. That's a huge deal for a free intervention. So that's something that's being uh, studied. And then the other thing is just trying to figure out, unfortunately, a lot of these drugs 
which are very new, um, are extremely expensive. And one of the problems, of course, with modern medicine is that now you have to add, you're not simply trying to do the best, you're trying to, like, the cost comes into, it becomes a factor that is, if you have a very expensive treatment, and uh, a lot of these are only marginally effective, then you could sort of reduce your overall quality of life because you've just bankrupted yourself and you might only get an extra month or two. So one of the sort of sad parts about cancer, for example, is that when they looked at a lot of these new drugs and they said, okay, let's take a look at these the, the most recent drugs and see how long they actually prolong somebody's life. And I think the average was 2.1 months. And it's like, wow, some of these drugs cost like, $300,000 a year. So imagine you've worked your whole life and now you just bankrupted yourself thinking, okay, well, I'm going to beat this cancer. But in truth, you're only looking at 2.1 months. So if you're 80, you might go to 80 and two months, but you've bankrupted yourself, which means that your quality of life is down. You can't pass stuff to your kids and so on. So it's a real... It's a real problem, and now that's where the sort of in modern medicine you really have to start talking about what the risks of are, what the costs are, what the benefits are. But uh, once you get it, you do have to think about things like that. So you mentioned immunotherapy as one of these new paradigms, and you you sound optimistic on immunotherapy. Can you talk a little bit more as we think about today and where we're going and this treatment? Talk a little bit more in the context of where we are in 2020 with immunotherapy and where do you think we're going? I'm an optimist. I said this, I'm a hope guy. Like, is is this it? And what will this look like in 22, 25? What has you so excited about it? Let's give people some hope here. I I think because this is sort of a new paradigm. So the paradigm now is not this genetic monster that just grows. It's really about this foreign sort of, it's evolved, this cancer cell has evolved into sort of almost a new species within us that the immune system is trying to kill. So therefore, let's try and uncover it. So this cancer cell, what it used to do anyway, was hide by producing molecules that made it look like a normal cell. And these new immunotherapy drugs actually try and strip away this sort of camouflage, so uncloak the cancer cells so that the immune system will sort of destroy it. And the first, the first few drugs of that class are already available. And now they're actually trying to design these sort of designer molecules, if you will, which is called CAR-T therapy, where they actually will take your own cells and try and turn them, like build up these antibodies and then inject them back to yourself. Now, this is sort of all new sort of stuff, but you know the, the fact is that it's a new sort of front on the war in cancer, which is why I'm so optimistic because now we're taking, we've gone through the cell killers, we've gone through the genetic treatments, now onto a whole new sort of thing. So with the amount of sort of research that's going into it, I'm quite optimistic that the drugs that we're going to see coming up are taking advantage of these new ideas of what cancer is, that cancer is something that can hide, it can change, and the immune system is our best chance of boosting it, 
hide, trying to take away the hiding places of maybe making antibodies so that we can point those sort of immune weapons to destroy it. And something that I talk about briefly, because again, it's sort of this new thing. It's not proven, but it's called the abscopal effect, which is super interesting because it's one of these things where if you combine immunotherapy with an old modality such as radiation, you might actually get better killing because as you sort of strip away as radiation starts to uncover sort of these cancers, then you have the immune therapy coming in. And so it has even the potential to make older treatments better. So therefore, by combining these different modalities, it will actually, we, we might actually even get more mileage out of a treatment that's been around for 100 years. So the more we understand that, and the more we get treatments that target that, and there's so many treatments that are coming out, people are talking about using electricity and, and using cold and all these other different things. So it seems like, I mean, it's always seemed like we're trying to make progress. But once we get to that new understanding, I'm a lot more optimistic than I was sort of in 2010 when when we sort of were at rock bottom. We found all these genetic mutations and didn't know what to make of it. Now we've got a clear path ahead of us. It's just like, like anything else, right? Once you've set the goal and once you've started sort of working towards it, now you have somewhere to go. Now you have something to follow as opposed to before we were sort of casting around in the dark. We didn't know which way was the best, but now we've got a path. And I have no doubt that with the with the researchers and the research dollars that are going into it, that we're going to find something. And I think in 2022, 25, what we're going to see is this sort of explosion of new drugs, but also this explosion of new ways to combine old treatments, old drugs into a way that's just going to be much more effective than the past. So within five years, that's promising. I think so. And in fact, if you look at cancer rates, there's a few things that that's interesting. One is that cancer deaths are going down. Now, most of that is due to stopping smoking. So that's very good. Something like colorectal cancer, for example, has been going down to, to increase screening. So that's another one that's very promising. Where we've really sort of faded in that cancer rates are rising is the obesity-related cancers. But again, once you understand that it's an obesity-related cancer, now you can start to tackle a problem. Now you can try and get back to a normal weight. And intermittent fasting is just another way to try and get there. It's a new tool that has not been used for a while, and you can get back to a normal weight. So those are all ways that are getting better. So I'm pretty optimistic. I think the tide has already started to turn. Now it's just trying to accelerate it, and that's a lot easier path than trying to sort of start the process all right well let's do it we're on board <laughs> dr jason fung Fantastic. thank you so much and congrats on the cancer code thank you so much